about a great time of worship. Let's give them a hand for that music. <laughs> I'd like you to turn your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. If you have small children, you're likely to have a growth chart somewhere in your house. Or even if your kids are all grown up, there's a spot in your house, maybe it's the inside of a closet door jam where there are marks and dates recording the height of your kids. Some families do that every year, and the kids are always excited to see how much they have grown. But can you imagine how shocked and concerned we would be if instead of growing up, one of our children was growing down? We would schedule an immediate doctor's appointment to find out what was wrong. You see, growing up is normal, and it's a cause for joy. But growing down is abnormal, and it's a cause for alarm. Hebrews is written to a church where some of the professing believers were shrinking. Some of them were growing down instead of growing up. He says at the end of verse 12 that they had come to need milk and not solid food. Imagine a teenager who quits eating regular food and goes back to formula. Imagine a teenager who quits eating regular food and goes back to Gerber's pureed peas. He says in verse 12 that instead of being able to teach others, they now need someone to teach them the ABCs all over again. You see, the author wants to talk to them about Jesus being a high priest after the order of Melchizedek, but he fears that it may be over their heads. And so before he plunges into that subject, he first confronts their spiritual anemia. He essentially says in this passage, why don't you grow up? Now commentators are divided on who this passage is addressed to because it leads into one of the most severe warnings in all the Bible. In chapter 6, verses 4 to 8. Some say he's addressing unbelievers here. Others say he's addressing believers. I take it that he's writing to the two groups that existed in the church he's writing to. And the two groups that exist in every professing church. Believers and unbelievers. Professors and possessors. Those that Jesus called in Matthew 13, the wheat and the tares. You know how I can tell the difference between a professing unbeliever and an anemic Christian, I can't. Only God can. And so I challenge them both. You say, but Dan, he calls them babes or babies in verse 13. Wouldn't that indicate that they're Christians? Well, yes, the word babes is used of Christians in the Bible. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 and 2, it says, And I, brethren, could not speak to you as to spiritual men, but as to men of flesh, as to babes in Christ. I gave you milk to drink and not solid food, for you were not able to receive it. And there Paul refers to carnal Christians as babes in Christ. In 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 2, we're told, like newborn babies, long for the pure milk of the word, so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation. But you know what? The term babes is also used in the Bible to refer to unbelievers. In Romans chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul describes the self-righteous Jew with these words. He says, you are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in the darkness, a corrector of the foolish, and a teacher of babes. Now, would a Jewish person pride himself in teaching Christians? No. He's using the word babe to speak of unbelievers. In fact, let me show you a passage. Look at Galatians chapter 4 and verse 3. Galatians 4, 3. 
Paul says, so also we, while we were children, that word children is the identical word used in Hebrews 5.13, babes. So also we, while we were babies, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. You see, he says we go from babes under the law to salvation, which makes us sons under grace. So the term babes is used to both believers and unbelievers in the Bible. And I think here in chapter 5 of Hebrews, the writer is addressing both. He's saying, I really can't tell who you are. So if the shoe fits, wear it. Or in this case, if the booty fits, wear it. And to illustrate that, when you come back to Hebrews chapter 5, when we look at verse 6, verses 4 to 8, this is one of the strongest warning passages in the entire Bible. In fact, he speaks of people who, to whom it is impossible to renew them to salvation. So he's talking to unbelievers there. But then if you'll notice verse 9, right afterwards he says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. So he's speaking to the people and he's challenging them and he's warning them and he's saying, But if you're a believer... I'm speaking to you this way, but I'm convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation. So he's speaking to both groups. If you're a new Christian, if you are a baby Christian, I love babies. But if you have been a professing Christian for a number of years and you're still in spiritual diapers, then there is reason for alarm. You see, living things grow. And if you're not growing, then you are either dead or sick. And this passage is addressing you. You say, well, how do I know if I'm in that category? Well, let's do an evaluation this morning. Forget about your outline. In fact, you cut off the last half of the outline because I was way too ambitious. We're only going to cover the first point. The symptoms of spiritual anemia. And I wanted this morning to give you five Symptoms. Five symptoms of a person who is growing down. Number one symptom is a hearing problem. Look at verse 11. Concerning him, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. Now the him in verse 11 is a reference back to verse 10. He, he finished the, the previous point by saying, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I'd like to say more about him, but you have become dull of hearing. Now, the Greek word dull is made up of two words. One is no, and the other is push. To be dull means to have no push, no energy. It's a word that means to be sluggish or to be slow. It's only used one other time in the New Testament. And on my, my Bible, it's on the same page. It's down in chapter 6 and verse 12, and it really describes to us the opposite of, of dull. Notice verse 11 of chapter 6. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end that you may not be sluggish. That's the same word as dull. But imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. You see, the opposite of dullness is having the diligence to turn the message of hope into the full assurance of hope. The opposite of dullness is imitating those people who hear the promises of God and apply faith and patience to that message. So you see, dull hearing doesn't mean there's anything wrong with your physical ears. 
it means that there's something wrong with your heart. Dullness of hearing is when the word of God comes into your ears and goes down to your heart and meets dullness, slowness, hardness. It's when the promises of God come to your ears, but there's no passion for them. There's no embrace of them. There's no treasuring them. There's no faith in them. There's no patience with them. Let me ask you this morning, does that describe you? Do you listen to the Bible or listen to the preaching of the Bible the way you hear the freeway noise on I-55? Do you listen to the preaching of the Word of God the way you listen to that elevator music in the dentist's office when you are half sedated? Do you listen to the Word of God the way you listen to those recorded warnings at the airport that say this is a smoke-free facility? No, you hear them, but you don't hear them. You have grown dull to the sound. The words don't awaken anything in you. The words don't produce anything in you. Let me tell you something. Lazy, drifting, passive, dull listening is incredibly dangerous. When Jesus had finished telling the parable about the four kinds of soil that the word falls on, he added this warning in Luke 8, 18. Therefore, take care how you listen. For whoever has, to him shall more be given. And whoever does not have, even what he thinks he has, shall be taken away from him. That's a sobering statement. That tells me that some people are going to wake up one day and realize that they haven't got what they think they've got because they weren't listening. Now, verse 11 tells us that teaching God's Word is a two-way street. On one hand, there is the knowledge and gift and the ability of the teacher to explain things clearly and in an interesting manner. But on the other hand, there is the receptivity of the hearers. And I find it very revealing and, in fact, at times very reassuring that the best teacher who ever lived used to exhort his audience and say, he who has ears to hear let him hear. The best teacher who ever walked this earth said, take care how you listen. You see, when Jesus is the preacher and the message isn't coming through, guess who is at fault? You see, you can blame it on the preacher as much as you want to. You can say he's boring. He's not making it clear. He's not making good applications. I don't like his hair. I don't even see his hair. But see, at some point, you have to own up to the fact that the real problem is right here. The real problem is dullness of hearing. Let me point out one more thing before we leave verse 11. He says, you have become dull of hearing. You see, that tells me they didn't used to be that way. There was a time when they were alert and interested and eager, but they have gradually become dull. They have gradually become sluggish. They have gradually become unresponsive. Let me tell you something that you may have forgotten. There is no neutral in a Christian life. You are either growing or you are shrinking. So which is it for you right now? See, we fool ourselves into thinking that we can tread water. But if you're not moving ahead, the strong current of the world and the flesh and the devil carries you backwards. 
Maybe as you look at your life, you used to be alert and attentive. But see, this is not about yesterday. This is not about what you used to be. This is about today. And as you look at your life today, maybe you are way downstream from where you started. If you are not listening today with an eager heart, then you are listening with a dull heart. When there's an opportunity to get into God's Word, do you say, nah, I think I'll see what's on the tube. When there's an opportunity to come here and hear the Word of God, do you say, eh, I'm, I'm tired this morning, I think I'll stay in bed and sleep in. Or even when you come to hear the Word of God, do you sit and listen with an attitude that says, I want to apply this to my life? Or is your heart somewhere else? See, if the latter describes you, then you have a hearing problem. And that's the first symptom of growing down. Second symptom is a maturity problem. Notice verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you have need again for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. Everybody loves babies. I know Tempa and I are having a great time watching our delightful, beautiful, brilliant, healthy, sweet, adorable granddaughter grow up. Did I mention beautiful? You know, often you hear people say, oh, oh they just grow up too fast. But see, the reality is that the part that makes them so appealing is that they're constantly growing and learning and changing. I, I spent some time with Mason Grindstaff this weekend, and it's like, oh, I thought he was a little baby, and now he's, he's walking around, and, and he's changed so much, and he's discovering the world as fast as he can. You see, the real shame is when a baby doesn't grow up. That's when we start to worry. And that's what was happening here in the spiritual realm. These people were old enough to be teachers, but instead they were needing to be taught. We've all been in a situation where we've seen an adult acting like a child. Maybe we've been that adult. They're throwing a, a temper tantrum, or, or they're not dealing with a frustrating situation in a mature way. And what do we want to say to them? We want to say, grow up and act your age. Well, that's what the writer is doing here. The author wanted to teach them about the significance of Jesus being a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek, but they can't handle it. It's kind of like trying to teach a student to read Shakespeare when he doesn't have, have a grasp on the alphabet. You say, well, what does he mean in verse 12 when he says the elementary principles of the oracles of God? Well, the oracles of God is not a reference to the gospel. In Romans 3.1, Paul asked the question, what advantage has the Jew? And then he answers it this way, great in every respect, first of all, that they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, what is the oracles of God? What is it that God entrusted the Jewish people with? Well, it's the Old Testament scriptures. You see, the letter of Hebrews was written to a Jewish audience at a time when the New Testament had not yet been compiled. And so the oracles of God would be the Old Testament. And that phrase, the elementary principles, means the first things, the basic things, the building blocks, the ABCs. What he's saying is that the Old Testament is the ABCs. Now, how does a child learn how to read? You give him a picture book, right? And on the picture book, they usually have an A on one page and an apple, a picture of an apple on the other page. And they, they learn from the pictures the alphabet. Well, he's telling us here that the Old Testament is the baby book. 
You see, when you go to the Old Testament, you see all the ceremonies and the sacrifices and the tabernacle. You see all these pictures. And what are they pictures directing us to? They are pictures directing us to Jesus Christ. And so the writer is saying, in terms of your years as believers, you ought to be teachers. But instead, you need to go back to spiritual kindergarten. In terms of your years as believers, you ought to be teaching the new covenant. But instead, you have to have somebody go back and reteach you the old covenant. Now, I think this is a very important message for our day because as I, as I look around today, I see what I consider dumbed-down Christianity. I, I, I see a lot of Christians who have an aversion to sound doctrine. In fact, you get the impression from talking to some Christians that doctrine is a dirty word. You hear them say, you know, well, doctrine is just dead head knowledge and it, it leads to arguments and divisions, so we need to be careful not to get into too much doctrine. In fact, someone new to our community was checking out the churches and they told me that they asked a few churches in town for their doctrinal statement and they were told that they don't have one. Well, I want to tell you that the fact is that every church has doctrines. In fact, every Christian has doctrine. In fact, every unbeliever has doctrines because doctrine simply means the teachings and the principles and the beliefs that you hold to. You have doctrines. They may be sound doctrines in line with Scripture, or they may be screwy doctrines that are inconsistent with Scripture, but everybody has doctrines. For instance, what do you believe about the Bible? That's your doctrine. What do you believe about man, where he came from and where he's going? That's your doctrine. What do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus Christ? What do you believe about salvation? That's your doctrine. You see, theology is simply the process of harmonizing the teachings of the whole Bible on the major subjects that it discusses. So if you are a Christian, you can't avoid being a theologian. The question is, are you growing to be sound in your theology, or are you shallow, mixed up, and unbiblical in your theology? And by the way, the point of this verse is that we never stop learning. When we are coming to know an eternal God who has given us an eternal book, we never stop in the learning process. Albert Einstein was once at a dinner party where a young neighbor girl had just gotten out of high school. And she asked the white-haired scientist, what do you do for a living? And Einstein replied, I devote myself to the study of physics. The girl looked at him in astonishment. And she said, you mean to say that you study physics at your age? I finished doing that a year ago. Well, maybe that's the way you treat the Bible. I finished studying the Bible when I graduated from Sunday school. Well, the writer of Hebrews is saying, by this time, you ought to be a teacher. But instead, you need to go back to children's church. Now, when he says you ought to be teachers, he's not speaking to a select group of leaders in the church. He's speaking to everybody. You say, well, does that mean that everybody should be a teacher? Well, not in the sense of the spiritual gift of teaching, not in the sense of teaching the whole body of believers, because not all believers are gifted teachers. That's why James said in James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such you incur a stricter judgment. That's why Paul tells us in Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. And so the writer of Hebrews is not talking about the spiritual gift of teaching. That's reserved for a few. 
He's saying that every Christian who has been a believer for a few years should be knowledgeable enough in the teachings of Scripture to instruct a young believer. If you've been a Christian for a number of years, you ought to be able to teach a Sunday school class or to teach a Bible study or to lead a small group. And if you can't do that, and you're not a new believer, then you are immature. And you are suffering from spiritual anemia. Third symptom, an appetite problem. Notice the last phrase in verse 12. He says, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. One of the things that marks a healthy person is an appetite. When my dad was first diagnosed with cancer, I could tell he was sick because he lost his appetite. I took him to Logan's and he ordered soup. And then he just sipped at the soup. He ate about a fourth of his bowl. I could tell he wasn't feeling well. I can tell he's feeling better now because he not only is eating better, he likes to talk about food again and where he's going to eat. You see, a healthy appetite indicates a healthy person. In fact, let me suggest to you that there are three things that mark a healthy spiritual appetite. Three things. One is when you eat. A healthy baby wants to eat, it seems like, all the time. They want to eat at least every two or three hours, and they're going to let you know when they want to eat. A healthy adult eats three meals a day, and when you miss one of those, what happens? You get hunger pains or your stomach starts growling to tell you it's time to eat. Well, how motivated are you for spiritual food? Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So we don't know a lot about hunger and thirst in America today. We, we just don't get hungry. But if you can think about the last time that you were hungry and thirsty, when you get that way, there's only one thing on your mind, and that's food and water. Well, when is the last time that the one thing on your mind was spiritual nourishment? One indication is when you eat. A second mark of a healthy spiritual appetite is what you eat. What you eat. Verse 12 is describing people who are old enough to be eating solid food, meat and potatoes, but instead they're eating pureed peas. They're back on the baby bottle. And if you'll notice here, he doesn't say they want milk. He says they need milk. They're not healthy enough to handle solid food. They're like someone that you have to put them in the hospital and put them on an IV because they need nourishment, but they can't take solid food. And so the three marks of a healthy spiritual appetite are when you eat, what you eat, and how you eat. How do babies go from the baby bottle to solid food? Well, the answer is they eat this pre-chewed food in a jar. You've seen this stuff. Applesauce, carrot squash, all messed up. I, I saw this week uh, a bottle of Gerber's uh, baby food, and on the, on the label it said, vegetable turkey dinner. Sounds pretty good. It was just a jar of mush. How do they eat that jar? Do you, do you take the jar and say, here you are, I'll be back in a minute. No, you, you open the jar and you take the spoon out and you have to spoon feed the baby to get them up to, to, to solid food. And sometimes when they're not real hungry, you have to play games like airplane. Did you play that game with your kids? Here it comes. Here. They're spoon fed. Well, let me ask you a question. When it comes to the spiritual realm, when do you eat? Are you in God's Word every day? 
Can you describe your spiritual appetite as hungering and thirsting? Do you have a one-track mind for spiritual nourishment? Are you passionate about it? Or are you rather passive and different? Do days and even weeks go by and you haven't even opened your Bible? Have you ever left your Bible at church and you didn't notice it was missing until the following Sunday? Well, that's a sign of spiritual anemia. When do you eat? What do you eat? Are you into spiritual meat and potatoes? Are you ready for Melchizedek? Are you still in the baby formula? You see, a teenager who is eating pureed peas has an appetite problem. And then thirdly, let me ask you, how do you eat? Do you come here on Sunday, and this is the only time of the week that you get any spiritual nourishment, and you expect me to come up here with the spoon and, and the smashed food and go, here it comes, here it comes. open wide. Or can you sit down with the Word of God and consume that and digest that and apply that to your life? Fourth symptom. How are we doing so far? Fourth symptom is a dexterity problem. Verse 13. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, but he is a babe. Now that phrase, not accustomed, means lacking in experience or unskilled. Babies don't have a lot of experience. They don't have a lot of skills. They don't have a lot of dexterity. Now how do you become skilled? Well, look ahead at verse 14. It says, but solid food is for the mature who because of practice. Practice. That's a real practical idea. Practice means you take what you know of the Word of God and you apply it to your life, and as you apply God's Word to your life, then you're able to take on other truths. You see, as a baby, when milk is applied to strengthen his body, then he moves to pureed peas, and then he moves to vegetable chicken dinner, and then he moves to some bites off mom and dad's plate, and then he moves to his own plate, and pretty soon he's eating more than mom and dad combined. And in the meantime, he goes from rolling over to crawling to standing up to walking, and before you know it, he's running. And that same principle applies in the spiritual realm. If you do not digest what you already know, then you're not going to move on to solid food. Some of you are stuck. You've, you've got truths that you're struggling with. You know God has confronted you about. He's made it very clear to you. You've never applied it to your life. That's milk. So you're not able to move up to the next level to solid food. And what is it he says we have to be skilled with? The word of righteousness. I like that. You see, that's the measuring stick. Your spiritual height is not simply measured by how much you know. It's measured by what you do. It's not simply measured by your knowledge. It's measured by your righteousness. And what happens to a healthy child? Well, they grow up and they begin to look like and act like and walk like and talk like their mom and dad. And what happens to a spiritual child? We begin to grow up and change and develop and walk like and talk like and act like our Heavenly Father. If you've been saved for years and you're still struggling with the basic truths of the Bible, the basic things that God taught you years ago, you've never digested, you've never applied, there's been no change, then you've got a dexterity problem. You're like a baby who has never learned to crawl. And that's a symptom of spiritual anemia. Fifth symptom is a discernment problem. Verse 14, 
But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Now, babies are not very discerning. They will put anything in their mouth. That's why you hear the parents always, oh, no, don't put that in your mouth. They're not very discerning. Discerning, discernment is a mark of maturity. Now, you may think, as he says here, that good and evil are rather obvious, but that's not really so. As I look around in our society, I realize a whole lot of people that don't discern good and evil. In fact, there was a recent survey recorded by the Washington Times, and they reported that 55% of evangelical Protestants have very unfavorable views of homosexuality compared to 28% of mainline Protestants and Catholics. You say, well, that sounds pretty good, 55%. No. That means that 45% of evangelicals don't have very unfavorable views of homosexuality. And I find that alarming. But you know what? When I think about it, when evangelicals watch the same TV shows and movies that the world does, when they get all the same get bombarded with all the same information that the world does, and they're reading their Bible only occasionally, why is it so surprising then that we would think alike? Good and evil are not so obvious. They need to be learned, it says in this passage, through practice and training. That word practice refers to a habit that is formed by deliberate effort. The word trained is an athletic term. It's the term Paul uses in 1 Timothy 4.1 where he tells Timothy to discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. No athlete excels by casually dabbling at his sport. What does he have to do? He has to set a goal and he has to work at it for hours every day and he denies himself of other pleasures so that he will not detract from his goal. As a Christian, the goal is righteousness. It's godliness. It's holiness. And we should be cutting out everything in our lives that detracts us from that goal. And as you practice, your senses are trained to discern good and evil. Now, the issue here is not whether it's good to murder or steal or commit adultery. You see, God made a list about that. We know those things. But there are hundreds of decisions that you and I make day in and day out which are not spelled out explicitly in the Word of God. It doesn't tell you what to watch on TV what to use for business tactics, where to live, what to drive, how to discipline your children, what to wear, where to volunteer your time, how much to give. Those are all discernment issues. And discernment is a mark of maturity. And so the lack of discernment is a mark of spiritual anemia. Let me close today by asking you to stand up straight against the closet door jam, heels on the floor, and ask yourself if you have the symptoms of growing down. Have you got a hearing problem? A maturity problem? An appetite problem? A dexterity problem? Or a discernment problem? Now I realize that spiritual growth is more difficult to measure than your children's physical growth, but you can be sure that you are growing down if you are treading water. You can be sure that you are growing down if you have no passion for the Word of God. You can be sure that you are growing down if you're not making a deliberate effort to discipline your life for godliness. And if you are not growing, you're shrinking. And the author of Hebrews says to you, why don't you grow up? I'm going to have the praise team come back.